Life's everyday mystery solved. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. Welcome. I'm Joe Schwartz. I direct McGill University's Office for Science and Society with a mandate of separating sense from nonsense, fostering critical thinking, making sure that you're up to date on what is happening in the world of science. And if all of that works, we hope to keep you out of the clutches of charlatans. That's what we do. And uh, we have a great guest coming up later in the show today, Dr. Harriet Hall, who's a retired flight surgeon. And uh, she practiced medicine for a very long time, and now she's practicing something else. Uh, she scrutinizes the scientific literature. She scrutinizes the lay press. She looks at, to see what's on TV, listens on the radio, and uh, looks at science with a skeptical eye and, like we do here, hopes to separate sense from nonsense. So we will talk to her. We'll talk to her about some of Dr. Oz's uh, antics and some of the nonsensical uh, products that are uh, out there. But first, I want to tell you a little bit about uh, plastic wrap, specifically a plastic wrap called Saran. Interesting name, isn't it? Well, Saran was named in 1943 by combining the names Sarah and Anne. And those were the first names of the daughter and wife of John Riley. John Riley was a Dow Chemical Company chemist, and he led a project to develop the plastic that eventually came to be called Saran. Well, interestingly enough, it all started with an accidental discovery. There are many things in science that began with an accidental discovery. Uh, obviously, the story of Alexander Fleming comes to mind. Uh, accidentally, uh, a mold grew in his Petri dish, but he was clever enough to recognize that around that mold, the bacteria had died. That was a, a classic accidental uh, discovery. Then, of course, one that I've told you so many times because it's one of my favorite stories is the discovery of the first synthetic dye, Movine, uh, by uh, a young uh, Perkin because he was trying to make quinine and trying to clean out his test tube. Didn't clean out well. He put some alcohol in there and, and produced uh, Movine. And William Henry Perkin, of course, basically began the dye industry, and that transformed into the synthetic uh, drug industry. Anyway, it was all accidental discovery. Well, believe it or not, Saran also was the product of an accident discovery, and uh, just like with Perkin, it was due to a dirty flask. In 1933, Ralph Wiley was a college student, and he was working uh, at Dow Chemical, helping out part-time in the research lab. And one of his jobs, as is often the case for young students who are hired, you know, for summer jobs in labs, one of his jobs was cleaning out glassware. Well, at the time, Dow was carrying out research on developing new dry-cleaning solvents. And these new solvents had chlorine atoms embedded in their molecular structure. Well, at that time, dry-cleaning wasn't really new. Uh, it had been around for a while, uh, but dry-cleaning solvents that had chlorine atoms in their molecular structure were becoming more attractive to research. Now, why? What was the history of, of, of dry-cleaning? Well, supposedly it all began when a clumsy maid spilled some kerosene and it stayed 
uh, uh, cloth on, on a tablecloth and found that when she soaked up the kerosene, the stains had disappeared. Well, indeed, kerosene is a good solvent for greasy materials. And soon they found that turpentine and gasoline and various petroleum distillates were also uh, very good at removing greasy stains. But there was a big problem with these. These substances were very flammable. So the search was on for solvents that would dissolve stains, which were not flammable. Well, way back in the 1830s, Michael Faraday, one of the greatest British chemists of all time, had been combining chlorine with petroleum components, and he had made a compound called perchloroethylene. It was not flammable, and it was a good solvent. But it was very expensive to produce commercially, and there was no commercial use for it at that time. But in the 1930s, because of the flammability issues of the petroleum distillates, chemical companies began to look at commercial production of perchloroethylene as a substitute for petroleum-based solvents, and, of course, they were also interested in, in similar compounds. So there were all kinds of reactions being run with um, uh, petroleum isolates, reacting with chlorine to see if they could come up with chlorinated solvents that would be useful in the dry cleaning industry. And incidentally, the dry cleaning industry is not dry. The term dry just means that no water is used in, in the process. Other solvents are used. And as we saw originally, it was kerosene or, or petroleum or gasoline. Anyway, it was one of these experiments when they were carrying out reactions of chlorine with petroleum compounds that yielded a residue in a flask that young Wiley was asked to wash. And no matter what he did, he could not scrub that flask clean. There was a dark, green, greasy film that remained. He brought this to the attention of his boss, and that was John Riley, who saw potential in the material. Well, he saw potential in a young uh, uh, student as well who had made this uh, discovery, uh, Wiley, and he eventually hired him as a chemist. And the two of them worked together at Dow trying to find uses for this novel material. And eventually they did. They found that it was very useful in protecting the wings of airplanes from salt water. It could be used to protect car upholstery. It was even used by the military as inserts in, in boots. Uh, it was warm and it prevented anything from soaking through into, into the boots. And by 1949, they had managed to produce it as a thin, clear plastic wrap which by 1953 went on the market and became very popular as Saran Wrap. Well, in 2004, Saran Wrap chemistry was changed, and that's because there were a lot of environmental concerns about chlorinated compounds. If these plastics sometimes ended up in incinerators, uh, the incineration process would produce compounds called dioxins, which were which are highly toxic. So the uh, manufacturer, Johnson & Johnson, of Saran decided that uh, a change in the composition of this plastic was in order, and they replaced it with polyethylene. Polyethylene is, is probably the world's most widely used plastic, and it can be extruded into very, very thin sheets. Now, truth be told, uh, as a food wrap, it is not quite as good as the original Saran wrap was, which was made of polyvinylidene chloride. Uh, the polyethylene uh, allows more moisture to pass through, more oxygen to, to pass through. However, it is not tainted by the problem of uh, producing uh, toxic substances when it is incinerated. 
obviously, we still have to be very careful about using any kind of plastic wrap because we don't want it to end up in the environment. There are all kinds of concerns about extra plastic uh, that we have used ending up in the ocean, and these are very legitimate concerns. Plastic wraps, of course, do protect food. They can cut down on foodborne disease. Uh, They allow food to keep longer. But we also have to be very careful about how we dispose of these uh, substances. And uh, there certainly is a movement today to cut down on plastics, and that's legitimate. But also we have to be careful not to sacrifice food safety by eliminating plastics where plastics are indeed uh, necessary to protect the food. Anyway, I'm sure that we will have a chance to talk more and more about this in the future uh, as many cities are now contemplating getting rid of single-use plastics and what the consequences of that will be. Uh, coming up, Dr. Harriet Hall, the Skeptoc, and we'll be talking skepticism. You're listening to The Dr. Joe Show. We'll be right back. Science you can use. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. My guest is Dr. Harriet Hall, who's a retired physician. And now, instead of examining patients, she examines the scientific literature. And she goes under the name of the Skepdoc. And Harriet writes in all kinds of publications. Uh, She has a blog, and she gets things right, which is the reason I love to have her on the show. So, Harriet, welcome. And uh, uh, lots of stuff to talk about. And uh, I thought we would get started with the story of Elizabeth Holmes, who was the founder of Theranos, a company that looked like it was going to revolutionize medicine. That has not happened. So tell us a little bit about Theranos. Okay, that's a great story. It it sounds like fiction, but it's nonfiction. Elizabeth Holmes was uh, an engineering student at Stanford, and she had no background in science or medicine. She dropped out of school when she was 19 to found a blood testing company. And she roped in a lot of very important, well-known people including uh, Henry Kissinger and George Shultz. And she created this company. Her, um, her motivation was uh, she, sa- she criticized the establishment. She said that um, she wanted to revolu- revolutionize the world of medicine by enabling patients to bypass doctors and order their own blood tests. And she hated venipuncture. She was afraid of needles. So she decided they would have this machine that would use a a simple finger stick uh, blood sample and would do 200 tests, 200 lab tests in one minute. And they built this machine that never worked, but they kept typing it. And um, they were actually running their tests on commercial machines and pretending it was their device. Just all kinds of things went wrong. And um, the people in the, in the company um, objected. Most of them didn't have any scientific knowledge either, most of the people that, that worked for the company. And um, one person did, and he tried to convince her that it was impossible to do that many tests accurately in that amount of time on such a small sample. But she wouldn't listen to him, and he ended up committing suicide. 
And uh, long story short, there there were all kinds of lies and all kinds of things went wrong. The company went bankrupt, and she went from a net worth of several billions of dollars to absolutely zero overnight, and there's a trial pending now. Now, how did she, with zero scientific background, even hatch such a scheme? I mean, how did she even think of, of possibly doing such blood tests, or was it just a scam from the beginning, and she knew that it was a scam? That's a good question. I mean, we could never really know what's in someone else's mind. But I, I think she must have realized, at least on some level, that it wasn't working and that she was lying and making things up. But uh, she had a lot of charisma, and she influenced a lot of people. And how was she able to enlist the, you know, the investors, the likes of, of Kissinger, who, who one suspects is no dummy, uh, well, she, without, without a, any evidence? She's a dynamic, charismatic, uh, attractive young woman. And she knew a lot of important people, and she talked a good talk. And she was talking to people who didn't have any knowledge of science or medicine. So she was able to bamboozle them. Now, they actually did build some machine, right? I mean, they, there was something that they placed in some pharmacies where people were supposed to be using it. Yeah, but it, it never worked, and they didn't like people coming in to inspect it because parts would fall off the machine, and they'd be able to tell it wasn't really working. They were using commercial machines to get their results. And people who invested lost everything that they invested, I would, I would yes. guess. Yep. And the, the trial that is pending now is, is based on what? What is she being accused of, and by who? That's a good question. I'm, I'm not exactly sure. I, th I think it was a, a, a conspiracy fraud type thing. Well, it certainly is, is, is fraud. I mean, because I mean, the machine never did what it was uh, supposed to do. And yeah. I mean, there's a lesson to be learned here. Uh, I'm not sure exactly what that <laughs> that is, but uh, about people investing in things without doing due research. Right. I wrote an article about it for science-based medicine, and I pointed that out. I said, uh, don't invest in an area that you don't know anything about without getting input from experts who do know. And if the experts are skeptical, they might be wrong, but you should at least try to understand their reasons for skepticism. Right. Not and you should look, look for data, not look for claims by charismatic individuals. Yeah, I mean, what makes this story really interesting is the tremendous amount of money that was involved so, yes. I mean, we're talking billions of dollars here that she accrued and supposedly her company accrued, which are, are now gone, and the yeah. investors have uh, lost everything. So, obviously, you want to check these things out scientifically before you invest in anything like that. Well, talking about, yes. you know, experts and, and non-experts, <clears throat> Dr. Oz. I mean, Dr. Oz, you know, <laughs> we, we've chatted before. I mean, he, he is sort of a an enigma because he, of course, is a properly trained physician and, by all accounts, a decent cardiac surgeon. He ventures, however, into areas uh, where he does not have expertise, and he's got the pulpit because he's on network TV and there are millions and millions of people who are listening to him. And I know that you just recently wrote an article about Dr. Oz selling lemons. Well, what sort of lemons is he selling? <laughs> 
He's selling lemon water. You're supposed to drink lemon water to start your day, and it's supposed to have all these wonderful health benefits. And the uh, evidence, there, there is no evidence for it, and the claims that they're making don't even make any sense. Uh, he says uh, that starting the day with warm lemon water will activate your digestive system. Well, your digestive system is always ready to work. It doesn't need to be activated. And he says that the citric acid in lemons supplements your stomach acids to help break down food. Well, your stomach is already more acidic than lemon juice, and it doesn't need any help. He says it supports the immune system and prevents kidney stones and all kinds of things. He's, he's basing most of the claims on the fact that it contains vitamin C. You know, one, one of the really bizarre things about Dr. Oz is that I think he says things that he knows cannot be true. Uh, I, I think he's yeah. well-educated, he's, he's well-read, he would know what the pH of the stomach is, he would know that putting well, lemon juice into it is not going to do anything to digestion. And I think he's now become an actor playing the role of Dr. Oz. I think he comes in, he's given a script, and he goes by that uh, without any critical thinking input. I have, I have called him a media whore. Well, that's a pretty strong term. I think it's. <laughs> but he's he's he wants to get ratings, and he's pleasing his viewers, and he's telling them things they want to hear. Like, here's another miracle pill that will help you lose weight. Yeah, I mean, he was all into the, the various weight loss schemes because, of course, their focus groups show that that's who their audience is. Uh, yeah. But he ran out of miracles there. So now he's into all kinds of other uh, stuff as well. And even though he had kind of a slap on the wrist from Congress about uh, over-promoting you know, some supplements, uh, he hasn't really backtracked. I mean, he still has Joe Mercola on the air you know, and, and uh, other uh, pseudo-experts. Anyway, so th- don't buy the lemons that Dr. Oz is selling, right? All right, we have to take a bit of a break here. My guest is Dr. Harriet Hall, the Skepdoc. We'll be right back. Your source when you need answers. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. My guest on the show today is Dr. Harriet Hall. Goes by the name of Skepdoc. She's a retired physician, actually a retired uh, Air Force uh, uh, surgeon. What was the actual title of your position with the Air Force? Uh, I was a, a flight surgeon. Flight surgeon. Not a, not a surgeon. It's more like a family doctor that takes care of people who are on flying status. Right. And now you take care of the rest of the world uh, because you scrutinize what is out there, what people are watching, what they're listening to, what they're reading, and uh, trying to make sense of some of the nonsense. So we chatted about uh, the Theranos fraud case with uh, Elizabeth Holmes uh, now uh, potentially uh, being tried for various kind of crimes and Dr. Oz selling his uh, lemons. Uh, he, of course, is not the only one who thinks that citric acid is, is, is wonderful. Uh, there was a guy, uh, Gary Young, who started a company of essential oils. And uh, this was uh, about 20 years ago when a tree fell on him and he was crippled, but he said he brought himself back to health by drinking uh, lemon water. And this this started the whole enterprise of, of his essential oils, which now is, is a multi-billion dollar uh, business. So, you know, Dr. Oz didn't invent the lemon juice n- nonsense. Okay, well, let's, uh, let's talk uh, about something that is a bit more serious which is the Tuskegee syphilis uh, experiment. 
And uh, th- this is uh, so- sort of a, a wart on the face of American medicine. Uh, so tell us a little bit about what the Tuskegee syphilis experiment was and what we have learned from it. Okay, the Tuskegee experiment started because they thought that black people had different responses to diseases than white people. And there had been a study showing the long-term effects of syphilis in white men in Sweden. But uh, they wanted to do a study in, in black men. And this started in 1932. It was originally supposed to be a six-month study to look at the natural course of untreated syphilis in 399 black men and a group of controls. Uh, it was supposed to last six months, and then they were going to treat them for their syphilis. But it ended up being a study of denying treatment to these men, and it lasted for 40 years. It was only terminated in 1972 after the whistleblowers uh, exposed what was going on. And by that time, uh, they, they hadn't told these patients that they had syphilis. They had uh, told them they had bad blood, which could mean anything to anybody. And during the course of the study, 40 of their wives uh, contracted syphilis, syphilis, and 19 of their children were born with congenital syphilis. So it didn't just hurt the men in the study, it hurt their families. Now, who was the they who were doing this study? Uh, it was the Public Health Service. So this was all, I mean, thought to be legit, right? I mean, it was under government supervision, and this was not some fly-by-night operation. Right, and they, they even uh, they, they got a black nurse to cooperate and drive these men to their appointments, and they got the black doctors into, in the community to cooperate and agree not to treat these people for their syphilis. So, uh, yeah, they impressed a lot of people. And what was learned from this uh, study? Not a darn thing. It was not a legitimate scientific study. There were all kinds of things wrong with it, and it didn't uh, improve her knowledge of of syphilis. Uh, It it may have done one thing. Um, I, I read a book by Harriet Washington about medical apartheid, and in that she says that they use the blood samples from these men to develop the standard test for syphilis to improve the diagnostic uh, uh, ability uh, to detect syphilis. So that may have may have come out come out of it. Also, uh, this this created such a scandal that uh, laws were passed. It, it made a lot of people angry, and they passed laws to require um, ethical treatment of research subjects. So that that was a of good outcome, although that probably wasn't just because of the, of the Tuskegee experiment. Right. <clears throat> one would think that one of the criteria when you're using uh, human test subjects is that the test subjects know what the experiment uh, that they're subjecting themselves to is, right? Which, of course, right. th- these poor people had had no idea. And they, they lied to these people outrageously. They wanted to do spinal taps on them to get the information from the specimens. Um, and they enticed the patients in with a letter that said, last chance for special pretreatment. And these men thought they were being treated for their disease, and they weren't. All they were doing was getting a diagnostic sample of their spinal fluid. Hmm. And, you know, uh, I mean, today there's a lot of sort of, you know, conspiracy theory about... Uh, 
governments colluding with you know physician groups and with academic scientists to to do bad things and you know undermine the health of the public hide cancer treatments and all of this and every once in a while uh, some nonsense like this comes to light you know where there really were bad things that were being done and this of course right. is now and being used you know against the whole scientific establishment and there were rumors that that the the experiment was injecting these people with syphilis and giving them syphilis which was not true but there were other situations where patients were given syphilis so there was a grain of truth behind the rumors and that book by, I mentioned by Harriet Washington is excellent, uh, Medical Apartheid. It, it covers all kinds of abuses, uh, research on children and prisoners and black people and unfair treatment, and it's, it's uh, quite an eye-opener. Right. So, you know, some, some of the uh, skepticism that is aimed at, quote, the scientific establishment in some rare cases, is warranted. And, you know, I mean, yes. sometimes Big Pharma also shoots itself in the foot by, right. you know, cherry-picking data. So and nobody is really immune to uh, to nonsense. But certainly the, dieta- <laughs> certainly the dietary supplement in- industry is not immune to, to nonsense. And I know that you have yes. recently looked at uh, one such product, uh, which claims that it utilizes protosome technology, whatever that might mean. It's some kind of proprietary technology, and they have a product called Protovite, and they say it is nutrition you can feel. Well, I'm not sure what that is, how one feels nutrition. I mean, anytime you put anything into your mouth, you feel nutrition. So what is this uh, Protovite all about? Well, the the thing that that really got to me was that they have research claiming that this stuff works, and the research is based on live cell microscopy. Now, what is the what is the claim? What is it supposed to do? Uh, I've, I've forgotten what I mean, exactly what cu- it claims. Cure cure everything, um, as you know, this is the usual yeah, thing, it's, right? It's it's a wonder drug. Yeah. But this this test that they use to test it is totally bogus. Yeah, I mean, this dark field microscopy, which is all over, you know, the Internet and in, in all kinds of bogus uh, treatments. I mean, it's a very popular technique that they refer to, which has no scientific yeah, they, they basis. Look, they look at the shape of the cells under the live cell microscope, and they can influence what they find by just picking where on the slide to look. Because if they look near the edge, it gets dried out and the cells go all wonky. And if they pick the best part, best spot on the slide, they look healthy, so they can find whatever they want to find. Right. Okay, we've got to take another little bit, bit of a break, and then we'll be back, and we'll talk some more about fake news and some of the fake health products that are out there with Dr. Harriet Hall, the Skeptoc. Science you can use. The Dr. Joe Show on CJAD 800. We're back with Dr. Harriet Hall, retired flight surgeon from the Air Force, and now she goes by the name of the Skepdoc and uh, writes about all kinds of interesting uh, health issues. And there's an article, Harriet, that you wrote about fake news about health products. <clears throat> and this is something that, you know, I, I address a lot and you you do uh, as well because there's uh, so much of this on the Internet. And uh, what what actually, you know, brought this to your mind now to write an article about fake news about health products? 
it's one of my biggest pet peeves, and it started with my local daily newspaper. newspaper. It was full of these fake ads that were disguised to look like they were news stories. And I kept seeing them over and over and over again. I finally got really disgusted with it and canceled my subscription. But uh, what it is, is they'll have a a half-page ad that uh, looks for all the world like a news story. It has uh, a a reporter with a byline, and I looked into it and found out that there, there were no such reporters. They had made up these people. And it, it supposedly comes from fake news organizations. Uh, one of them was the Associated Health Press, which is designed to confuse you because the Associated Press is a real organization, but there is no such thing as Associated Health Press. It's just a made-up thing to make it look legitimate. And uh, they, they put all kinds of testimonials and claims, and they say it's supported by evidence, but if you go to look, look for the studies behind it, there's, there's no there there. Uh, it's all bogus stuff. And um, they, we, we were talking about Dr. Oz. Several of those ads have pictures of Dr. Oz with a Dr. Sears who developed several of the different dietary supplements. And it's just a picture of, of the two of them at a conference. And it's meant to make the reader think that Dr. Oz uh, supports these these treatments, but he doesn't. And they're just taking advantage of a, of a picture where they've got them in the same place at the same time. Now, Dr. And Sears is a, is a real person. And, uh, I mean, I, I yes. have attacked him on numerous occasions <clears throat> because uh, he sells all kinds of products which have no scientific basis. And uh, the ads that you talk about, I and mean, we see them everywhere. We see them in our, in our local papers uh, as well. All kinds of liver cleanses and, and products that, that claim to grow hair and uh, lose weight, you know, with all of them. And, and uh, again, as you say, it's they're... Better, better than Botox. Takes 10 years off your face in <laughs> right. 10 minutes. Right, right. So, yeah, so Dr. Sears is, is real. And uh, he's... What can I say? I mean, he does really have a degree, but but uh, judging by the kind of things that he says and the products that he promotes, I, I think he is certainly lacking some critical thinking. Uh, but, you know, when it comes to making money, I think uh, uh, the sense sometimes goes out the window. Uh, why do you, you think... Know, the, yeah, go ahead. The, one, of, one of the funniest things about this campaign is that uh, the articles are usually in a daily newspaper, and they pressure you to buy right now. They offer a hotline with a special discount for 48 hours only, and they tell them say you're, they're going to have to shut the hotline down soon, so call right away. But the funny thing is they're doing the same ads in monthly magazines, and guess what? The monthly magazines say special hotline will close down after 48 hours. Yeah, well, these are tried and tested marketing uh, <coughs> techniques, and people no, fa- people fall for it. What's 48 hours after yeah. you get a magazine? Right. They're delivered different places around the country at different times. You may buy them on the newsstand. You may pick up someone's copy later. So it's just, it's just ludicrous to say a 48-hour hotline. Yeah, and they, they create this illusion that it's a product that's difficult to come by. And that you better, you know, jump on the bandwagon now because otherwise it's going to roll past you. Well, I think these are the bandwagons that you don't want to jump on. But why do you think 
that there's such a proliferation of these questionable health products uh, out there. I mean, really here daily in our newspaper, we see ads for, for these things. And obviously it works. It works. I mean, people must be buying these things. Otherwise, they people are. Yeah, people are buying it. It, it, it makes money for these people. It's, it's a great success. Yeah, but why are so many people buying these things that do not work? How come that, you know, the message doesn't get out, that people don't, you know, say, well, you know, we tried this, we tried it, it doesn't work. And how come that message doesn't roll roll out there? Well, because people uh, respond to testimonials. If, if somebody says it works, for, it works for them, that negates all of the science. That's That's all they want to hear. They want hope. Uh, they have a problem, and they they want to hope that they can solve their problem easily. If you had one thing that you could do uh, that would most improve the general health of the North American public, any idea what what you would suggest? Yes, as a matter of fact, I would suggest that we start teaching critical thinking in preschool and keep pounding on it through all levels of education, because if we taught people critical thinking skills, they wouldn't fall for these silly arguments. I I totally agree. I I think also it is very important from early on in elementary school to teach students about how we know what we know. I mean, those of us who think that we're evidence-based and, you know, give good advice, how do we know? And talk to them about how science works and what the peer-reviewed literature is and why you believe something that's in the New England Journal more than what's in the National Enquirer. And I think it's very possible to get that message across even at the elementary school level. So you get them thinking. Yes, it is. And and there's a wonderful book called Nibbling on Einstein's Brain that teaches these concepts at a grade school level with uh, all kinds of uh, clever cartoons and ploys. They they talk about uh, ads that you hear on television trying to sell something, and uh, it's just it's very well done. What I is it called again? Could, it's called Nibbling on Einstein's Brain. Ah, okay. Sounds very appetizing. Okay, I hope that people will search out that uh, that book. I certainly will. I haven't heard of that one, so I will certainly uh, look at that. So, Harriet, thanks very much for all of the uh, stuff that you do on behalf of science and for sharing some of that with us here. Uh, so I've been speaking with uh, Dr. Harriet Hall, the Skepdoc, and you can check her out. You just Google Skepdoc and you will find the wonderful things that she writes. Thanks a lot, Harriet. And that's it. We are fresh out of time. You've been listening to the Dr. Joe Show. And until we meet again, same time next week, I'm Joe Schwartz, hoping all of the chemistry in your life comes out just right.